we are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Neil, what are we talking about today? We're talking about Turkey. Mm-hmm. Which we're doing a lot, but you know, these days it is the focus of uh, the big picture. It's still in Syria. We're talking about Turkey, but we're talking about Syria because it's something that's become a lot clearer this week after five years of incredibly murky stuff going on in Syria. The basic facts are clear to everyone. A lot of people have died. The blame for who and why, why those people died is, of course, heavily distorted. And something clicked in a big way this week by the actions of Turkey in Syria. Mm -hmm. Look at it this way. There are so many paradoxes in the situation, but one is now, it's front and center, even in in Western reporting on the situation, which is generally distorted, but they can't, run from the basic facts, staring everyone in the face. The situation right now in the same region of northern Syria has U.S.-backed YPG, which are the Syrian Kurds, with roots really in Iraqi Kurdistan. Anyway, the Syrian Kurds, backed by the U.S., actually have U.S. soldiers fighting with them, are in, engaged in battles right now with Jabat, Al whatever it is, Al Sham, which is a rebranding of Al Nusra, which is a rebranding of Al Qaeda, which is supported with U.S. weapons. It's U.S. backed, so we've got two U.S. factions engaging in battles in the north of Syria, and I think it's finally come full circle, and the U.S. is basically undone because. Uh, Things have been brought to a head in such a way that uh, it's not going to be busted wide open. It's not going to find some way to keep making the situation murky for the general audience. But it's quite—it's pretty clear now to anyone really paying attention to this that uh, things of the uh, U.S. proxy wars have, particularly in Syria, has really come unstuck because they are in a bind now of their own making where their two proxy forces are attacking each other. And Turkey is also using some of those proxy forces against the others, against the Kurds. And the U.S. can't say, oh, no, Turkey, please don't do that because uh, of this bind that it's in. Everyone thinks the U.S. is there to... Anyway, uh, all the Western nations involved in this are there to destroy ISIS. But it's very clear now that ISIS is irrelevant. It's about something else. And I should really pass it back to Joe because he, he saw this clearly a couple of nights ago when we were discussing it. And, uh, yeah, give us, give us the clarity of that that's come up this week. The clarity? Yeah. So people come here for? Jesus. 
No, it's just, um, yeah, it's more or less what you were saying there that, um, <clears throat> uh, I was thinking during the week there that, um, <laughs> you know, when people use, uh, code words or euphemisms or something for, um, for something that they don't want to, uh, state officially, you know, uh, or say out loud, say in public or whatever, and they'll, I don't know, I can't think of a good example now, but it's something like, I'm, and you put it in quotes, you know, I'm going to blah, 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 but, you know, you realize everybody understands that you're going to do something else. Um, well, that's what uh, we are fighting ISIS is is now amongst the uh, the power brokers of this world. It's uh, everybody's fighting ISIS, and everybody puts it in scare quotes, you know. We're going to fight ISIS, okay? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh <clears throat> And that's what that's what's being used. Yes, we're fighting ISIS, but obviously, as you said, they're doing something completely different, and there's a completely different agenda, right? Um, so, I mean, it just struck me that I mean, obviously, we've known for quite a long time that ISIS was, uh, and everybody half sane should understand that ISIS is just there uh, was there from the very beginning, um, in order to overthrow the Syrian government. It was a proxy force designed to overthrow the Syrian government. I mean, these people weren't Syrians at all. Apparently there's, you know, there's probably heard the figure thrown around of there's about a hundred different nationalities um, in Syria amongst these so-called rebels, and they're all uh, there to, you know, democratically overthrow the Syrian government, even though not, most of them don't actually uh, live there or come from there. Well, a so, hundred countries is pretty democratic. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's internationalist kind of uh, democracy type thing. Everybody can come in and overthrow any government they want. So, um, yeah, as you were just saying, it seems that the U.S.'s kind of Plan B is, or Plan F, or Plan G, or whatever plan they're on right now. You never know what goes on in the halls of power, but they are on their agenda now is, okay, since we can't really get rid of Assad, it's not an option, um, we are going to try and use the Kurds uh, against, effectively, they have been using the Kurds from the beginning, it should be said, they have been using the Kurds from the beginning against uh, Assad, they've been whipping them up as part of their proxy forces, but they, f- they figured, obviously, that uh, the Kurds weren't enough, you know, uh, the Kurds have been kept uh, down kept that bay uh, for for many many years for decades uh, in Turkey in Iran in Iraq and in, and in Syria and, and um, there the the Kurds themselves weren't going to be enough of a force to to effectively get overthrow Assad uh, uh, on the, on behalf of the U.S. government so uh, ISIS was necessary and ISIS was ISIS was, ISIS was brought together to do the job, you know, out of the remnants of, well, the people of the U.S. that kind of put together in Iraq during, I mean, over 10 years of occupation in a country, you know, you can do a lot, you know, putting hundreds uh, or tens or hundreds of thousands of people in prisons, uh, you have access to all those people, you know, you can basically create a little army out of a out of a country like Iraq, which had whatever, 20, uh, 26 million people or something like yeah, that. Yeah, about the same as Syria. So, Once more, quick. The possible question there is that the, it's not so much that you would have these ragtag people 
some of whom ha- would have had previous fighting experience, of course, yeah. in, in other war theatres. Um, it's not that you would have them actually overthrow a state army. Rather, they, they create enough mayhem to justify, oh, goodness, look at the situation here. When you, it, it creates the situation that allows for, say, a U.S.-led Western intervention. That was plan A, and that came a cropper in 2013 when Putin nixed it via the chemical weapon. You remember the build-up yeah. to that? So, yeah, in the beginning, I think they were thinking, okay, mercenaries create havoc, but we don't actually depend on them to execute something quite sophisticated and, and uh, involved as overthrowing a whole country. Well, But they at least create a pretext for it, you know? Well, you can. I think that was the plan, that they must a, a big enough... Uh army effectively to, to, to do it and I'm sure they had na- the idea that eventually there would be some direct yeah like you said direct western military involvement to, to kind of the, deliver the coup de grace type of coup de, coup de grace type yeah. of um, yeah, yeah. but they would have done the, the death uh, knell most, most of like. the work I mean there's no boots on the ground except the, the odd, a few special advisors or SAS or CIA or those kind of types in there but most of the fighting and mayhem is is done by the by these jihadi mercenaries that they that they recruit, and then they come in and say, for humanitarian reasons, you know, I mean, we're going to follow the game plan of Libya, and that, that was really a game plan that they had developed a long time ago of you know, create chaos, create mayhem in the country, and then uh, to overthrow and, and use your media to demonize a, a leader and call him a brutal dictator, and then uh, manufacture some evidence that he was bombing his own people, like Saddam, like uh, uh, Gaddafi, mm-hmm. etc. And then that allows for an, a NATO kind of yeah. Uh, no-fly zone kind of bombing campaign that would, would would finish it off, and then you would have your people in there, and that would be the end of the government. And I, you know, hopefully, I suppose in their in their in their minds, hopefully Assad would have been executed, etc. So it all didn't work out, and there's still question over why in 2013 that vote that was in the Senate to to, to allow uh, bombing of Syria and the, a vote also in Parliament in the UK for the same thing was rejected. You know, and I think there must have been something sent around. <clears throat> to those people, to the politicians who are the congressmen and, and the members of parliament in the UK who are uh, who voted no mm. uh, to say, listen, this isn't a good idea because because I mean, there's no reason for them not to want to do that because um, they, were, they were talking to us about a bombing campaign. They all love bombing, basically. Mm-hmm. Most of them love bombing. And they were not talking about boots on the ground here. So uh, I think there might have been something behind the scenes that, and obviously Russia was front, front and center in that, yeah. and it was. We'll get rid of his chemical weapons if that's a rationale. We'll organize it. And they were like, okay, yeah, as if that's what they wanted, as if they actually wanted to get rid of chemical weapons, no. as if they actually believed that uh, Assad had used any chemical weapons, which he hadn't, which has been proven that he hadn't actually used them. So that wasn't, they weren't concerned about that, really. But they went along with Russia saying, well, let's go with your narrative here. And they were forced to accept their own narrative and hoist it on, on their own petard in that sense mm-hmm. because something else was uh, understood behind the scenes. Russia must have basically said, listen, if you do this, it's not going to be, you're not going to. And I think the most likely situation um, there was that Russia had, Russia said that they had already delivered or, yeah. or could very easily and very quickly deliver S. Uh, anti-missile yeah. uh, batteries, S-300s or S-400s to Syria, and it was not going to be... I mean, basically, th- these people are happy, these politicians are happy to say, yeah, let's let's get this guy who's bombing his own people, let's let's send a NATO bombing campaign in there. So they're, happy, long, they're happy to do that as long as no planes get shot down. But if there's any risk that their planes will get shot down, they run scared. So they're basically chickens, complete and yeah, other... Chicken hawks. Yeah, they're, they're chicken hawks. The Russian defenseman recently gave another clue when he said that... Um, 
That was a very close call, something to that effect. She said that was a close call that, that time in August 2013, three years ago now. Um, he seemed to be implying that the, they were they were weapons hot. They were about to strike because he he, mm. he could number. He gave a specific number. He said 624 cruise missiles were aimed and locked on to Syrian cities. Mm-hmm. And that's how close it was. That right. was. So that was supposed to be the death knell. And the it end didn't of it, happen. It didn't happen. And then it kind of morphs into <clears throat> Plan B. ISIS, which is run by ISIS, and comes um, on the scene, or it's a rebranding of the existing groups. Right, it's already there. Right, people should remember that ISIS really only came on the scene at that point. ISIS hasn't been around that long. The two years previous to that, which was the, uh, uh, the that that the, that the Syrian so-called civil war had been ongoing, had um, been disparate groups. Uh, you know, free Syrian, Syrian army, army, that kind of. Oh, there's some Al Qaeda in there, blah blah. And it was only after the NATO bombing campaign, which was tabled immediately after the bogus allegation that Assad had used chemical weapons. It was only after that was nixed that ISIS then suddenly really, oh, look, ISIS, who's that? Who's, look over there. Who's that in, in Iraq? It's ISIS. Yeah. It's the crazy Muslim we, horde we coming. All, we all remember their introduction. Stage left, the long convoys of SUVs, mm. brand new, all dressed in black, yeah. new shiny uniform. Yeah. On call, basically. They were just... Uh, uh, called in, so they, they they steam across the border from uh, Iraq of all places, uh, out of the dust of U.S. occupation of Iraq into into Syria, and then they they, they start really uh, ramping things up in terms of bombing cities, doing effectively what uh, the U.S. and the Brits and NATO had been prevented from doing. What they were doing more or less trying to do the same thing from the ground, which was launching car bombs and car Damascus. bombs, launching you know, launching hellfire cannons or whatever they call them, like basically gas canisters, all sorts of different missiles uh, on, on on populations and cities in Syria. Um, and of course, one thing that people should remember as well is at the very beginning of this whole Syrian civil war. I mean, if you look at how, how it actually started, it started way down by the at this in the on the border with Jordan. That's how the Syrian uprising. The popular uprising in Syria started in a couple of villages of a few hundred people with a couple of people on the streets. That's, you know, officially if you want to look at how it, the image of it as a, as a nationwide popular uprising. It, it didn't start in Damascus or Aleppo, two of the, by far the biggest cities and the major population centers of, of Syria. Nobody in those cities was having any kind of revolution except a couple of yokels, supposedly, down in a village on the Jordanian border. But even then, as soon as that began, if it... It didn't even begin as a popular uprising. Even there, it was right from the very beginning a bunch of armed uh, militia-type people who were shooting at, at, at cops, shooting at cops and any military uh, personnel who were on the streets. And they were being basically shot kind of point-blank and gone down. This is security service of Syria were being shot down by gunmen, basically, from somewhere. And this was called the Syrian Revolution. So basically it took off from there. But people forget all these details, which is kind of annoying. It's really annoying when people forget things and don't remember very things very well because it, it allows for all sorts of... It means it can be repeated well, in the next conflict. And allows for all sorts of evil to manifest itself, basically. Ignorance and lack of awareness and uh, understanding. So um, so anyway, we're jump ahead then. Yeah, 2013, ISIS comes on the scene uh, out of Iraq. Um, by definition, U.S. created, since the U.S. created Iraq, that it, the Iraq that is today is, is a direct, is a product of 10 years of uh, U.S. occupation and control of that country. And right down, I mean, control right down to writing the laws of the country. If you remember, what do you call him? Um, Paul Bremer, 
2004-2005 writing the laws, writing a new constitution, constitution. for yeah. Iraq. We don't get any more, uh, any more, any, uh, any more obvious ownership and, and uh, responsibility for a country than you're writing the laws and deciding who gets jobs, who doesn't, the structure of the government, etc. So, Iraq today is a, is a child of American foreign policy of America, of the American government, the American military. So if ISIS came out of Iraq, then ISIS came from America. Um, and on purpose, obviously, because, you know, <laughs> it's just, oh, you, I mean, you have Western politicians, ah, Assad's evil, he's a brutal dictator, he has to go, Assad has to go, he's a brutal dictator, and then a bunch of jihadis appear and they all want to overthrow Assad. How are you not going to make that connection? between the people calling for Assad's head and the people actually trying to get his head. It's just strange coincidence that they seem to have the same uh, political goals. Give me a freaking break. Like, Anyway, um, so, yes. Uh, Throughout this, it appears that Erdogan of Turkey, for example, I mean, there are other players, but he's a key next-door neighbor player, arguably Jordan and, yes, Saudi Arabia funding the Gulf states and so on. But Turkey's key because it shares this long border with the north of Syria. Mm. And, I mean, Joe, Joe had his doubts, but I was always like, well, Erdogan's up to his, up to his neck in blood. He's well, he, knowingly involved. He wants to be involved. He wants a piece of Syria, or he wants, at all costs, there can be no... Mm. Uh, uniting of Kurds and so on. So, in in substance, a lot of the material, a lot of the personnel. I mean, this is reported all over the place. Financial Times casually, I saw them do it a few times. Reported that oh, four hundred rebels passed over the border today from Turkey into mm-hmm. North Syria to join the blah 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 fight to overthrow Assad. So yes, Erdogan has been up to his neck in it, but. It's it's taking on a different perspective now. Well, it has done in, in recent years, but I just wanted to go back a little bit and say something about uh, the people. There's a lot of people on kind of bleeding-hearted lefty, liberal-type, uh, alternative left or uh, redux part two, the new left or something, whatever you want to call it, who, who are humanitarians, you know? No one should die. They're super the humanitarians, yeah. and, they're, and they're kind of very simplistic. While they write very well and they can talk very well, they're zealots, and they're kind of like uh, democ- grassroots democracy is what it's all about. And they have latched on to And there's a bunch of different people writing in the alternative, supposedly, news against. And they're even against the U.S. and against Western imperialism stuff. But they're totally for the idea of an Arab Spring, you know, and they're totally against Assad. There's this strange breed of people who are just saying, stop the killing, stop the killing. Assad's br-, but, but they're adding in Assad's a brutal dictator and he's bombing his own people. And, yeah, the U.S. shouldn't be there. Everybody should stop him. It's all mixed up, and they don't really have it very clear in their heads what's actually going on. Because I don't know why. Uh, I think they're just they're emotionally invested in, in the idea of they see, you know, pictures of people, well, people being bombed and dying and stuff. But these these people are, you know, saying, "Sad's a brutal dictator," and I'm like, "You're repeating." I'm saying to these people, actually, literally, on, in different places, you're repeating Western propaganda. Uh, there, but no, but it's, he's obviously there's evidence that he's been bombing his own people and stuff. And I'm like, but you're getting, you get, that's what the West is saying, and they admit that that's what the West is saying. So they're agreeing with Western, uh, the Western stance on Syria. I'm like, but the same people who you're voicing 
or the people that you're voicing the same opinion as, i.e. Western powers, uh, about Assad, that he's a brutal dictator, they're the ones who, who, who fated him and who were his bestest buddy not 10 years ago. Uh, and back then, you, who are now calling him a brutal dictator, didn't, you weren't saying he was a brutal dictator then. Why not? Uh, people, well, they will say that people weren't dying in the streets then. Huh? Yeah, but they should... They, but, well, well, there was evidence, though. I mean, uh, there, there has to be evidence. A person doesn't come from being a brutal dictator one year to... Or from being, for example, invited to Buckingham Palace to have, uh, mm. to have lunch with the Queen of England one year and then suddenly within a year or, or a few years suddenly he's a brutal dictator that, that's something that has been going on for a long time so if you have any concern for the people of Syria you should figure out what's, what's the truth here so, so how can you basically these people are getting information that Assad is a brutal dictator from western media and western politicians but western politicians were calling him their bestest buddy when he should have still have been a brutal dictator so you can't trust what comes... The point is you can't trust what... They don't seem to understand you can't trust the, what is said in Western media because these people are mostly in the West and they have some identification with uh, their own governments and stuff and they're not, they're not really that bad. They wouldn't lie. They just don't understand the depth of the duplicity of the situation and they just make a horrible mess, basically. They should just go away, you know? It's far better to have the actual liars on one side who try and catapult their propaganda repeatedly and just deal with that rather than, rather than having this this group of people who just are totally clueless in the mm-hmm. middle who are kind of saying a bit of both, you know. I um, still remember six six years, well, five, five some years ago when it started, my, my jaw just dropped when I saw some of the most ardent defenders of Palestinians, people who'd been to Gaza, mm. who know damn well the local politics. Um, I was getting into pretty... Pretty serious, serious fights. I mean, it's all online, but some serious rows with them. And they're saying, "Are you, are you saying he's not a brutal dictator?" And I'm, I'm, I'm saying to them, "Do you not remember the part where Assad has been, and everyone agrees with this, the best defender of Palestinian rights, mm, yeah. and his father before him, mm. in the 20th century? Did you forget that? I mean, what? How do you square that up?" You of all people should know this, and, and it should make you question. But they have some ideological or emotional attachment to the idea of, of of people power, basically. You know, free the people and let the people let the people decide and stuff. They and get swept up or confused by the Arab Spring yeah. propaganda right. slash. There's some real. I mean, it's revolutionary fervor, and it does tend to bake a right. lot of people's brains. Right. And these people, the reason I mentioned that these similar, these same people are the ones who are talking about this gets us back to Turkey. They're pretty much down on Erdogan, Erdogan, you know, um, that he's this evil guy who was uh, facilitating ISIS, and he's got you know, basically they just don't like him and stuff, and he's, he's evil. He's got neo Ottoman designs, or he's an Islamist. He's, yeah, he's an Islamist. And when they say yeah, that that when they say he's an Islamist, like it's meant to be pejorative. Mm. Again, Western propaganda. Well, that's the thing. Uh, you know, exactly. That's what these people are caught up in. They're caught up in basically the demonization, the, the, the bought and swallowed hook, line, and sinker, the idea of uh, Islam as evil. And yeah. what they really want to do is westernize all of the Middle East. They want to. They really want to get rid of Islam. They think that uh, Assad as a, as a, although Assad is like probably the most secular ruler in the Middle East, um, they they still think that any of these leaders of these countries are keeping these people Islamified. 
they probably have things about, you know, women's rights and all that kind of stuff, and they mm. project an awful lot of stuff, they mix up an awful lot of stuff up, and they just want to free every all the people in the Middle East and be friends with them and grassroots revolution, and we can all drink Coca-Cola and wear bikinis instead of burkinis, you know? So that's the kind of simplistic uh, worldview they have, and it really is very simplistic. So, uh, And they don't like Erdogan either, and they don't like people saying that, which is what you were getting into just a little while ago, that... Uh, things aren't so black and white with Erdogan, you know, because um, things seem to have changed. I mean, there's been a, a military coup, in, in an attempted military coup, an attempted coup in in Turkey, that has pretty clear um, hallmarks of Western, back to Western inspired. Uh, despite the fact that Joe Biden was in Turkey this week, uh, uh, fawning all over uh, Erdogan and, and being a complete another a hypocrite, basically. I mean, he's. I think I, I read a little bit of his what his speech or his talk with Erdogan, and he's, uh, uh, you know, let me say it one last time: the American people stand with you. Barack Obama was one of the first people you called, but I do apologize. I wish I've, I wish I could have been here earlier. Yeah, you weren't there earlier because you were hoping that he would he would go. You lying. I mean, how yeah, pe- yeah. how people like Erdogan actually stomach? People like that, you know, who you know, they're, they're saying exactly the opposite of what you're pretty sure they actually mean. Somebody just tried to stab you in the back and now saying, oh, I understand That's who did that to you. And you're like, I know it was you. And you're like, and they're like yeah, yeah, oh, it must be terrible. Let, let me support you in whatever way I can. How do you feel? You want a cup of tea? You know, oh, we're here for you, whatever. And you're just going, Jesus, oh, wow. You, know, you have to be pretty... Uh, we have to be schooled in the in in the ways of basically that you have to understand. You've been brought up in the, to to understand and you know learn from your experience that this is the way international politics work. Basically, nobody says the truth to anybody. Everybody lies to everybody, uh, and in the most flagrant and outrageous ways. You just as you don't believe anything anybody says, but you go through the process of listening to them and saying other stuff back to them. And then you go and do exactly the opposite of what you just said you were going to do, probably, mm-hmm. you know. So, and sometimes they do it for the purpose of, usually they do it for base reasons, yeah, for aggressive, subconscious aggressive reasons. But often, uh, often enough, they'll do it because it's simply for self-preservation. Mm. So, um, yeah, if Erdogan's lying about X, it doesn't necessarily mean he's got nefarious intents. And not just him. But I'm using him as an example here, but. You've got to think about that with a lot of other world leaders too. Mm. They're also playing up. They're playing into the game of the war on terror. Mm. But what are their reasons for doing it? Right. You know, the whole the whole way it actually operates, what how it operates behind the scenes, and what they actually the intentions of all these politicians is completely different from what they actually say their intentions are. You know, the vast majority of them. Uh, so yeah, it's. Um, well, that's another problem now. Uh, anyway, um, talking about uh, Turkey, Erdogan. So Erdogan invaded, uh, Turkey invaded Syria with tanks recently. Um, not that first incursion, but no, this, this one's a much bigger one. This is a big one, all in, not all in, but, you know, full on, let's go uh, into Turkey, no problem whatsoever. Uh, obviously, uh, the only one real comment from um, uh, the Assad government saying this is a violation or a breach of uh, of our sovereignty. Sovereignty, but strangely enough, not 
um, a lot, if anything at all, from Russia on it. Uh, not really a word. Now, this is kind of strange, and this is a big indicator that about what's actually going on, that Russia hasn't really said anything at all. Um, now, this was different from uh, six months ago or a year ago when um, Russia was effectively doing everything it could to keep Turkey out of Syria. It established a no-fly zone over that whole, most of that Turkish uh, border, Turkish-Syrian border. Um, so that was that was up until, you know, it's, if, if you think about it, so, I'm sorry, I'm being distracted here by something else. Um, a year ago, Russia was trying to, was doing everything, it was bombing uh, convoys that were going over into Turkey and into crossing over the Turkish-Syrian border, uh, established uh, this kind of no-fly zone, and this was then around the time that culminated in uh, the shoot-down of the Russian plane uh, over just over the border that was blamed on Erdogan, etc. Uh, so Russia was working, apart from bombing ISIS and bombing American mercenary kind of sites and arms depots, etc., they were... Uh, in a sense, there was a strong sense that they were working against what the Turks were, were doing at mm-hmm. that time. And they were releasing information about uh, convoys of oil, of stolen Iraq, uh, Syrian oil going into Turkey, all that kind of stuff. And who profits. Right. And then, um, now we have a situation where Turkey has apparently has free reign to cross over officially uh, into Syria and carry out operations in Syria. And the only thing that the thing that really marks the difference between those two two things is one the shoot down of the Syrian plane, oh, the the Russian plane, uh, supposedly by Turkey, and then the coup. And those two events, one of the first one leading to the second one, or are, are leading up to the second one effectively, um, have changed a lot of things. Uh, I suppose getting to the point. What they have, what has actually changed is it has changed the internal power structure in Turkey. Um, and that's just kind of speculation, but it seems to fit. But prior to the coup, and over the past number of years, I mean, uh, Erdogan was elected in 2012, 10, 12, 10, whatever, 2010. Well, he was prime minister for a decade before right, that. but president. Yeah. Uh, so he has, he, him and his people, or whatever, have been when they when he became president, <clears throat> he's not really president of the of the whole country. He was, I mean, it's well known. There's a lot of evidence for there being essentially a, a shadow government within Turkey, a kind of deep state that was really running the show. So it's not unreasonable to assume that the people who were, and of course that's directly linked to NATO and Gladio operations, which is linked directly back to the U.S. The U.S. had a, the U.S. had a the point is the U.S. had a very strong foothold inside Turkey, inside the power structures within Turkey and could do a lot uh, you know, indirectly, effectively, for uh, along the lines of U.S. interests. Uh, that involved uh, facilitating the movement of U.S.-backed jihadi mercenaries into Syria from Turkey. And Erdogan couldn't really do much about it. Uh, Russia is bombing 
these these this mo- these movements of jihadis etc and, and oil coming back into Turkey, <clears throat> and then for their trouble, a plane is shot down, a Russian plane is shot down, again by this power structure within Turkey. That is the one, the power structure that the, the the secret government or the shadow government. Basically, it was all happening as far as I'm concerned. <clears throat> beyond the oversight or without the explicit consent of Erdogan and his kind of closed party members. Uh, so he uh, was trying and not doing very well at attempting to wrestle or wrest control of Turkey back from this fifth column within the country that shot down the Russian plane and forced him. I mean, what's he going to do? Is he going to say, no, we didn't do that? Well, that we didn't shoot down the Russian plane. Well, then you're saying that you don't have control of your military. Uh, you're exposing something very, very sensitive if you were to do that. So the rush, the, 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 the Erdogan, the prime minister at the time, etc., had to take ownership of that. I mean, the impression for me, and as I wrote at the time, was that they were, they were caught with their pants down. They were completely shocked in terms of their responses. Um, but eventually, they kind of thought about it for a while, had a bit of a chat, talked about it, and realized some home truths. And Russia was involved in that. And, of course, the Russian sanctions against Turkey, etc., had to be imposed. But Russia demanded an apology and eventually got an apology. And within um, a few weeks of this apology being made, there's a coup in Turkey mm-hmm. to get rid of Erdogan by this fifth element, uh, fifth column element within that's NATO-aligned within Turkey. It fails because it's a bit of a... Well, it, was, it almost succeeded, but it failed, probably because of... With, uh, with the help of Russia, it failed. And... And then things are there's a whole new a whole new world basically. Uh, Erdogan is pretty much indebted to Russia. Of course, he's not going to bow down or anything like that. He's got a lot of pride and stuff, but he sees the writing on the wall and he understands a lot more about how far the U.S. Was go, would go and did go in, in terms of trying to remove him and how much you know what they're willing to do. So he sees the situation more clearly and he decides to align himself more with Russia and go along more with Russia's plan, what Russia wants to see happen in Syria. And that is the kind of background to the recent changes, were, uh, the recent developments where Turkey, the Turkish uh, military, and now today even the Air Force have been bombing, uh, effectively bombing Kurdish areas, despite the fact they're saying we're going to remove the scourge of ISIS, ISIS from our border, but everybody says ISIS, right? I mean, yeah. it's like... I mean, ISIS in this context means the Kurds. When the U.S. talks about ISIS, um, they mean the, the Syrian government and Assad. When Russia talks about ISIS, it means the U.S.'s proxy forces. Oh, Every, whatever kind. Everybody's using ISIS as a euphemism for the groups that, for, to fulfill their own agenda. Uh, and the, there are competing agendas here, but which agendas are most aligned with each other? Which agendas can work together and achieve what they want to achieve? Uh, it seems that... Uh, at this point, it's um, Russia, Turkey, Russia and Turkish agendas are the same, especially since it became very clear to Erdogan that he's kind of living on borrowed time in a certain sense. If he certainly, if he if he doesn't wake up and smell the coffee about the U.S. and the, yeah. the influence of the U.S. within his country, uh, uh, so and but the, were their were their agendas coincide? A Russian agenda to keep Syria whole and to stop the overthrow of Assad, etc. And, and Turk, were, were Turkish, the Turkish interests uh, coincide is uh, the Kurdistan 
question. And the US is using the Kurdistan option as a way to achieve what they couldn't achieve previously, which was the complete uh, destruction or, or overthrow of the uh, Assad government and the cre- complete regeneration or renewal of Syria and remaking of Syria in their own, in their own likeness. <clears throat> They've now opted for uh, a Kurdistan, which is pretty much the idea of a, a country all along uh, the northern uh, border or the Turkish-Syrian border inside Syria, right over to the Mediterranean and over and even into um, into Iraq, northern Iraq, uh, joining up in northern Iraq there with uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, which uh, the idea of an Iraqi Kurdistan holds is the area that contains most oil, uh, and most of the biggest uh, oil fields in Iraq. Uh, and then in theory, what worries uh, Erdogan is obviously the idea that that would then be used to justify the spread of a Kurdistan into Turkey, which has a big uh, Kurdish population. Um, okay, that's a potential future, but right now, I recommend everyone pulls up a map of of the latest layout of who rebels are, ISIS, government controls, and then the Kurdish control areas. Pull up a map of this. You'll find it on, on even even just on a a regular website, New York New York Times or any of them. They're all pretty much in agreement. So there's this band all along the north of Syria, which is mostly YPG, that's the Kurds. And that's been spreading slowly from the north east towards the west, towards the Mediterranean. Notice that there's a break then, and then there's a pocket that's Kurdish held beyond that to the west. That break is about north of Aleppo, and it's shrinking every day. There's been reports in the last couple of weeks about the advances of the YPG. They took Manbij, the town of Manbij, and that's beyond the Euphrates. Mm-hmm. And they're spreading further. There are also reports I got from, uh, from last night. Inside Aleppo, somehow the YPG are also in Aleppo, which is in the center zone of, of these two regions. They seem to be trying to merge. The agenda, as far as the U- we can see from the U.S. now, in Plan B or whatever it is, is to, to narrow the gap. And this corridor, that's, um, I, think they've, I think they say it's, it's being held by other rebel groups, whatever, north of Aleppo. They want to close the gap and have de facto a Kurdish-controlled region all the way, eventually all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. It's not quite there yet, but you see that there are two areas and they want to close that gap. The Euphrates River has been a kind of a natural division between those two pockets of Kurdish-held areas. And that's why the, the Turks this week named their operation, Operation Euphrates Shield. Their objective is to push the Kurdish advances back from Manbij and back across the river. At least their minimal, their bottom line is the YPG cannot come further west than the Euphrates River, which is why their point of entry was Jarablus. Jarablus is on the Syrian-Turkish border and it's on the Euphrates. That's their line. They don't want the Kurds coming any further west than that. Because mm. that would hook up uh, and create a, give them a justification or reason to claim a, a de facto. A, a de facto. Uh, well, more than that, because both areas, the north, the, the, the Kurdish held north east of Syria is already de facto declared, well, de facto, it's been recognized by some, they've declared autonomy. And that little pocket that's further west beyond the Euphrates have also done the same. Mm-hmm. So the, 
the Turks see the writing on the wall. They know what's going to happen. They're going to hook up, become one little Kurdistan, and in the future could easily become, take a chunk of Turkey, Iraq, wherever. And this is what's insane about the situation. But it's all, it's clear if, if you think about the context we're giving you here. The U.S. had, Biden is there in Ankara at the day, on the day this is launched. Giving it is okay. He has no choice. The U.S. says, yes, we're giving air support to the Turks coming down to Jarabas to stop this opera, to stop the advance of the Kurds. This is a joint, that's why I'm sure a lot of our listeners felt the same when they heard this. Oh, Jesus, Turkey's now doing a joint military operation with the U.S. What the hell? Oh, so much for all, you know, uh, Turkey pivoting towards Russia in the east. Well, the U.S. has no choice. They have to say, oh, yeah, we're behind this. We're in agreement with this because they don't want to give away the fact. But they have already given away the fact that the Kurdish advance across the Euphrates was only facilitated by an unknown number, possibly thousands of U.S. special forces embedded with the YPG. So the U.S. has got the... It's literally in this tiny little zone, the same area, they've got the U.S. military doing one thing and doing the opposite. It's too, this is what I mean by they've come into a bind. Everything's come undone because they've got two proxies fighting each other with U.S. military support directly behind each of them. Right. Uh, it's kind of funny, as, as you mentioned. I mean, there was, there was Biden's over and, and the U.S. is saying, yeah, we're totally cool with what Turkey's doing. But what they're actually saying is that we're totally cool with Turkey bombing and shelling the YPG, who U.S. Uh, troops are embedded with. Now you can get your head around that. That's, that's the level of, of duplicity and, and BS that's coming out of the U.S. these days. So there's no choice yet. So, and remember also when, when you see headlines like Turkey in joint uh, operation with U.S. Against, against someone, whatever, in Syria, uh, th- that's Western, the Western media headlines. Mm-hmm. That, that you're reading. Uh, that's not Turkish. You know, that's not what Erdogan's saying. Erdogan's not saying, yes, you know, uh, or he may, he may say, yeah, cool. If you're cool with that, then I'm cool. Let's, let's do this operation together they, and go ahead. They and probably didn't give air cover, but they were, they wanted to send out the message that this was the joint Turkish U.S. operation. Right. Uh, as a kind of holdover Turkey slash to keep up appearances. Keep up We're appearances, both going yeah. together now to attack ISIS targets. Yeah. But actually, we both know this is about the Kurds. Um, now, just to, um, just to explain a little bit about the, the situation in, as I mentioned, across in, in, from the Syrian border over into Iraq, uh, there are approximately uh, 5,000 U.S. troops in Iraq today. Uh, they had to go back uh, because they forgot something. Uh, <laughs> they forgot their, their they forgot their Humvees and their uh, armored personnel carriers and their rocket launchers and all the weapons uh, that they left for ISIS, uh, that ISIS used. No, well, they had to go back to, into Iraq, um, well, just, you know, or stuff, right? But the, the reason they're in Iraq, there's 5,000 in Iraq, and they're all basically working with the YPG, uh, the Kurds, in northern Iraq to take uh, their, their plan, building up for a big uh, move on ISIS-held Mosul, 
city of Mosul in northern Iraq, which is in Iraqi Kurdistan, or what they would like to be Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, so this is the other element that shows you that the plan is actually, the U.S. plan, W or V, whatever they're on, is actually to uh, try and to use the Kurds, to ally with the Kurds full on and uh, use them as leverage, you know, validate or promote their idea of a, of the creation of an Iraqi Kurdistan to uh, to achieve what they couldn't achieve uh, in terms of getting rid of Assad and taking over all of Syria. Now they're settling for, or trying to settle for, uh, the creation of a Kurdistan so that they can have a little client state in parts of Iraq and Syria that will then allow for you know, pipelines, gas export, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the whole point of all this is, in case you need to remind you is the whole point of the Syrian at least from a political or geopolitical perspective the whole point of the the destruction of Syria and the attempt to remove Assad is to or was to provide a replacement uh, for Europe for, uh, for 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 Russian gas to Europe to use Middle Eastern gas and oil uh, but primarily gas from, for example, Qatar up through uh, Saudi Arabia, through Syria, uh, into Turkey, and then over to Europe. And then it's, sorry, Russia, we don't need your gas anymore. Europe doesn't need your gas anymore. Um, that was the whole point of doing what they've done to Syria, because Syria, when that was proposed to Assad, that, you know, why don't you allow us to use Syria or accept a, a gas pipeline from Qatar and elsewhere uh, to Europe, Assad said explicitly, no, I'm not going to do that because that would be screwing over Russia. And then the U.S. said, well, we're just going to have to, just going to have to call your brutal dictator who's bombing his own people in. I'm sorry. Um, so, that's what's going on. Do we, do we have William and Harrison? They haven't heard a peep in them. Um, Apparently not. No, we haven't heard a peep from them because they're... Uh, Otherwise engaged. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens here. But um, uh, the U.S. is... It, it's another little... Uh, no, it's not, not a little. It's fairly, it's very significant, at least in terms of the northern Middle East. It's, a, it's the U.S. has been hoisted on its own petard. Um, what are they going to do to get out of this? It's hard to say, but the, their plan B, creating a Kurdistan, is uh, not going to happen because they they can't they can't. They can't do two things at once. Uh, they could, they could, up till now, it was okay to use the threat of creating a Kurdistan against Turkey to keep it in line or against Iraq to keep it in line. But once you actually start to make the move, you have four countries who stand to lose from the creation of such a country, four existing countries, and you're pushing them together with each other with a benefactor, Russia, that understands their mm. needs, mm -hmm. and in the end, 
the the whole U.S. drive to get rid of Assad ends up the energy behind it ends up being chal- channeled towards the very last thing they wanted, effectively a Middle East that is not controlled by Russia, but is, um, I don't know, aligned with aligned with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, if they really want their curse on, they're going to have to go to the next level, which is do the shock and all themselves. They're too chicken shit now because they'll be in a direct confrontation with Russia. Mm-hmm. They got no. They got really few options other than more of the same, more jihadis, more war, more more terrorism in Syria. But it's not going to work. Um, Another big development in Syria is uh, from a suburb. It's actually a city of about 300,000 people. This week, um, it's been held by rebels, in quotes, for pretty much the whole duration of this conflict. It's Daraya, city of about 300,000 people on the east of Damascus. All 700 remaining rebels, in quotes, Agreed voluntarily agreed to leave yesterday under a deal reached with the Syrian government. What it means is now that Damascus and the surrounding area is fully under Syrian government control for the first time since 2011. Mm-hmm. So there's another fact on the ground, which is a nail in the coffin, another nail in the coffin for regime change in Syria. Yeah, I mean, if you really look at the situation um, and... I mean, objectively, you would at this point be saying, what the hell is the U.S. doing there anyway? Why are they even bothering? They've, they've been checkmated effectively. They're not going to go anywhere. With, they're not going to get anywhere with this Kurdistan business. You know, the the Syrian army and the Syrian government and the Russians and the Turks now with Iran and even Iraq to a certain extent are... Um, they're all onto them. They're and all, well, they're all still making ground and they're pushing ahead and they're all getting rid of ISIS. And when you get rid of ISIS, you get, you're getting rid of America. So, And that's to a certain extent why they've turned to the Kurds. But that's not going to happen because none of these countries are going to allow Kurdistan just to be mandated or, or demanded of them, you know. So no matter how much pressure the uh, <coughs> the U.S. government tries to, tries to put, you know. Um, so, you, so you might think to yourself, well, why don't they just say, okay... Didn't work out, you know. We were we we're bested this time by by a better 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 player or whatever. And let's just go home. But then, it's something that I have to keep reminding myself of yeah. is that war and bombing is an end in itself for these people. People think people. We all tend to think as kind of normal human beings. Uh, or relatively normal human beings, I suppose, uh, that um, that when people go to war, they go to war for a particular reason, uh, you know, to achieve something as a result of the war or through through fighting, you're going to achieve something that's important to you, uh, and that's what because that's what normal people people would do. Um, but when it comes to psychos or the type of individuals that are waging these wars in the U.S. and in, in, in Europe, um, war, like I said, is an end in itself. If you can just come up with a pretext and get people to support it, uh, then you've won already. You don't have to have an agenda. You don't have to actually... You usually often do have an agenda because you want 
to get uh, other people's resources, you want to change something for your benefit, etc., somewhere else. But you're you're secure in the fact that even if it all goes horribly wrong and you don't achieve what you, what your actual agenda is, you've still won because your first foundational fundamental agenda is to drop bombs, is to have a war where your military uh, drops lots of ordnance on somebody else. And it's not, it's not so easy when you think about it, I mean, because in our wonderfully uh, democratic and free and civil modern society, uh, most people would be against just uh, you know, uh, random, <coughs> random acts of violence like that for apparently no, no good reason. You can't just go out and say, I'm going to bomb that country, because I feel like it today. Well, uh, it gives me a paycheck. Right. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't, they, and obviously they can't say that, but that is the bottom line. It's uh, war makes money. Uh, the more weapons and bombs and bullets that are dropped and fired anywhere by the U.S. military, the more money uh, U.S. Uh, so-called defense contractors, big corporations, are able to steal from U.S. taxpayers or European taxpayers uh, to pay for those weapons that they then give to the U.S. military mm-hmm. that takes them overseas, that drops them on people's heads. And the more they do that, the more the more this funnel of cash from the U.S. taxpayer up to corporations who are all closely aligned with the politicians who are actually making the public argument for the war. So as long as you have politicians who can continue to argue that that guy over there is a bad man and we need to do stuff and, and make up evidence and, and, you know, regale Congress with horrible stories and get uh, paid actors to come in, you know, uh, children uh, to come in and talk about babies and incubators and stuff. That's their, that's their job, is to propagandize for bombing some other country. Um, once they've done their job well enough, then the people are, okay, yeah, let's get there's some tacit consent. At that point, uh, the U.S. military and the defense contractors give massive amounts of weapons to the U.S. military. It takes them over and bombs that country and then needs to be resupplied over and over mm-hmm. again. And to resupply them, vast amounts of money from the U.S. taxpayer go to the defense contractors who then share it with their politicians who are continually making the war, the argument for war. This is why, as U.S. military personnel were being taken out of command centers in Saudi Arabia recently in its obliteration of Yemen, as they were leaving, checks were flying in for the amount of $1.3 billion in weapon sales to Saudi Arabia because in the end, the people behind it don't lose. Okay, we're <laughs> let's get out of this. Is a polit- politically, this is a hot potato now. Everyone's saying that Saudi Arabia is committing war crimes and we're implicated, so let's get out and look clean. But it doesn't matter because here's the check and here are the weapons. It's also the reason why over the last 15 years you could never get a straight answer. Journalists, when pushing U.S. military generals generals to explain what exactly are strategic objectives in Iraq, in Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. they could never give you a straight answer, I think, in substance because they didn't know. (laughs) They themselves don't know. They just know that they got to get this town or they have to deliver on this contract because that's what they understand has to be done. Or, or the answer that they give, the answer they head on, which is so simplistic, uh, they, they just go for the, the painfully 
mind-numbingly simplistic and, and, and stupid uh, rationale, which is freedom and democracy. And that's why, I mean... If I they realize, know us smart for the retirement, they'll just say that. Yeah, and I mean, that's, but that's why... Repeat they, the talking points. Right, just a talking point, and it has to be very simple because they can't go, in, go into any details. You no. don't want to give a complicated kind of rationale or... Uh, to the public or whatever, or even semi-complicated about why this is happening because you realize that none of it would make sense because that doesn't, it's not actually true what you would be saying. Um, so they realize that the only way they can really justify the unjustifiable, which is just bombing for profit, bombing a country just to make money, is to say, he's a bad man. He, he, sw- he, he swears and curses and, and spits and he uh, is really bad table manners. You know, trying to appeal to uh, the really, I suppose, fairly low-level mind of a lot of people, or average people, not low-level, but I mean, you know, ignorant in terms of not, not very uh, complex or nuanced in their thinking, um, and who would uh, who, who react emotionally to things. Um, the best way to shut someone up is to is to is to cry wolf effectively, you know, to to say uh, something that they can understand, they can easily grasp, and has an emotional component to it, which is why um, you talk about freedom and democracy. Um, so, why are we bombing that country? You shouldn't ask that question. What you should ask yourself is, do you love freedom and democracy enough? Because <laughs> if you do, then you'll support us. Not only do you love freedom and democracy enough, but do you not like bad people? Let me put it to you straight. Are you a good person? Yes. Do you like other good people? Uh Uh-huh. Do you love your country? Do you love all the good people in your country? Yes. And do you love good people in other countries? Yes. We'll understand there are bad people out there. You know what bad is? Yeah. Well, do you like bad? No. Well, what do you think the solution is then, huh? Support the troops. Let's roll. Lock and load, baby. We're going to get them. Get the bad guys. Smoke them out of their holes. <laughs> Woohoo! Reality TV, baby. So, uh, shock and awe. So, that's the kind of dialogue that's had with most American people and most Western Western people uh, in terms of whether or not to uh, go to war or not. You know, there's baddies and goodies and everybody knows who we are, so let's, let's, get, let's get to work, you know, uh, make the world safe for democracy, teddy bears, unicorns and other cuddly things mm-hmm. and apple pie, you know. Do you like mm-hmm. apple pie? And support the troops. Yeah. Who doesn't like apple pie? It's not probably a, a terrorist. A terrorists don't like apple pie. In fact, ISIS said recently they hate apple pie. They can't end well. I mean, this summer, the U.S. government State Department advisory warning Americans to travel, traveling, don't travel to Europe. You know, Europe's not here. Uh, I think a lot of people. Well. Remains to be seen. I think. I think. I still think enough Americans don't. They can be tagged along from one propaganda blitz to another, mm. but I don't think they're quite 
uh, so far gone yet that they, they can't yet be. Because in the end, people, people, all people, are like weather vanes. Yeah, you know that's a problem. Though. They can, they, they can be flipped around the other way. Yeah, but uh, it, it's been it's been the problem thus far. But um, if if a flip happens and it, uh, people are now aligned another way, um, I mean, I mean, look, look at the popularity of Trump. And he's he's going into it's some complex issues, you know, NATO, Russia, global affairs, stuff that's not within the U.S. borders. And he's speaking to people who, on day to day, in their day to day awareness, has been constricted to the United States is the world. That's the Fox mm-hmm. News thing. But here's the guy getting, he's on the he's the same of the same cloth, so to speak. He's on Fox News. Fox News love him. But he's talking about a bigger world, mm. and there the weather vane's flipping with yeah. him. Well, it's, it's largely the same. Uh, you can flip people around. You can, you know, move people, have them switch, whatever. But it's usually using the same tactics, you know. Uh, so what Trump should do is he should say, "I want to tell you something about apple pie." All the apple pie lovers out there. Most That's of a- the ingredients are from all these other countries. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Russia made the first apple pie. Uh-huh. They were like, why apple pie, Russia? We love Russia because we love apple pie. Uh, you could get them to like Russia if you said something like that. Um, in a manner of speaking, you know, it's certain to, yeah. to, that, that would be effectively the, the level, more or less the level of discourse. So it could be a bit, little bit more nuanced than that, but you can easily get people to, to, sw- to switch around as long as um, people have your, you have people's attention, you know. That you first of all talk to them about something that's important to them, and that's what obviously Trump is uh, is talking to people about. You know, they don't have the whole picture, but he's talking to them at the level of, you know, their problems. You know, uh, or at least he allows for people to project onto him that he is talking to them at the level of their problems. You know, mm. uh, in, in a different way than uh, than previous Republican or Democrat op- um, uh, candidates or politicians have done. You know, he's more kind of down home and stuff, and he's uh, he's talk- But I mean, <laughs> people in America in particular don't know what's going on in the world. They're not interested. They're not taught to be interested in what's going on in the world. So, um, I think it's a bit late to try and to try and uh, introduce them to that. And anyway, there's an awful lot of issues within America that need to be solved that are far closer to home and far more important to the average American than the stuff that's going on in Syria or elsewhere. Even though the stuff that's going on in Syria may have a direct impact on what's going on in America. There's still a lot of stuff that's kind of homegrown in America and that's the kind of stuff I think that uh, that Trump is is talking about and trying to tap into. And of course Hillary isn't believed in anything she says because she uh, she's an establishment figure who talks in, in, in the same way that all the other establishment figures have done and eventually America, I think finally American people are, are, are getting wise to that uh, kind of BS that's been that's peddled to them has been peddled to, peddled to them for for many many years by either a Republican or a Democrat nominee. I mean, the last great hope was a Barack Obama, hope he changed Obama in two thousand eight. But people, that's it. I mean, eight years of that and nothing's changed. You know, things have got worse. Yeah. Under a black president, you have Black Lives Matter. So it's time for a change. You know, and people are ripe for a change in the U.S. They're 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 ripe for giving up on. Uh, a lot of them, anyway, are ripe for giving up on uh, the the usual suspects, and Trump 
whatever else you might think about him, is not really a usual suspect in terms of uh, dyed-in-the-wool polit- uh, politician or uh, Democrat or Republican, you know. So that's where, I, that's where I think his popularity comes from, and he has an opportunity to do whatever he feels like he's doing or whatever his advisors, whoever they may be, end up uh-huh. deciding that he wants to do, and that's the big question. I mean, he doesn't lead the country or the world. He's not going to be the leader of the free world alone. When he gets, if he gets into the White House, well, there's going to be institutions, think tanks, uh, all around him who he's not going to change, who will be providing policy advice and uh, and presidential advisors and all that kind of stuff. Who are not, he's not going to pull them from uh, Trump Tower, you know. And they're going to be. He's going to have to have career politicians, be they political. He's going to be quickly introduced to the Kagans. Yeah. And military, military personnel and stuff. He's going to need people to help him out who, who know the system, right, if he's going to work within the system. And the problem is what agenda do those people have who are part of the system, you know. So uh, here's a statement uh, recently from one of those dyed-in-the-wool eminence grises of the U.S. Brzezinski wrote an article in The American Interest toward a global re- realignment, quote, as its era of global dominance ends, the United States needs to take the lead in realigning the global power architecture. Take the lead in leading from behind. <laughs> <laughs> Too late, Brzezinski. It's all but over. As I mean, they can still cause a, a, a lot the, of chaos. but As the era of global hegemony comes to an end, the U.S. needs to be hegemonic. Complain about it. <laughs> and try to claw back some power and kick and scream and threaten to bring everybody down if they don't get to be uh, the favorite person. It's weird, isn't it? It's like a recognition of reality, but not. It's it's the essence of schizoidia. You know, it's this kind of psychopathy where these really brainy people, they, they, they can see things objectively, but there's some thorn in their brain that just twists it all, either right at the end or throughout the whole narrative. Um, they're so smart. They see the world. Oh, we know, we understand those people over there. We just got to manipulate them this way. And they often have success. And then they see that the reality then conforms to mm. their efforts. And right. they're like, awesome, awesome. Like, but they still don't. Well, they can't. I mean, someone who's like a super narcissist slash sociopath slash psychopath, whatever like that, they just see everything around them. And, they, and if you're in a position of power, I mean, ordinary people in the street who are like super narcissistic or or, or sociopathic, or whatever, see everything around them as extension of the, extensions of themselves, mm. right? It's just everything there is just to to please me and to serve me and to give me what I want, and nothing really exists other than what I look at. If I don't look at it, it's not there. Almost, you know. Uh, and that, the same applies, and you, you translate that into people in power then who regularly go and have meetings about what to do in this part of the world or that part of the world. Then you have masses, the whole population of the country, the population of the world is just an extension of themselves, you know. So um, it's very hard for people in that position to come. I think it's impossible for them to turn around and say and understand that other people have another, other people have their own ideas, their own identity that is not same as yours and want to do things that is not what you want to do you know i mean uh, they can't even go there you know so they just will persist all the time in just reframing the picture if there's any little if they're forced to accept that something in the world 
has not gone the way they planned it would go uh, because of facts on the ground. They don't. They never fully accept that. They never say, okay, like I was saying earlier on, okay, this hasn't worked out, let's just go home. They never admit no. defeat. They simply change the picture to say, oh, now I see. Okay, now I can just retool this to continue to be a projection yeah. or, or an extension of, of me and my interests, you know. Uh, so no matter what you ask them, they will always come back to that idea of uh, everything Everything should happen the way I want it to happen, the way I will it to happen. And of course, when you've got a big, the biggest military in the world and all this economic power and stuff, you can actually, that's, that's the hard thing, is that the ordinary person in the street who thinks that way has a chance of getting over that because they regularly clash with other people when they try to project things onto other people or insist that other people just are there for their own uh, use and should always do what they want. Other people go, no, push back. But when you are in a position of a lot of power, you can actually have those delusions and then make it so, you know? Mm -hmm. Assad's a bad man, he shouldn't be there, we want his country for this. Well, yeah, that's a nice idea, but you don't get to have that. Well, you do if you've got a big military that can go in and bomb the country. And if you've got, a, like you said, a smart mind, an intelligent mind who can come up with really devious manipulative strategies to actually achieve that goal. And then you say, well, see, I must be right in my psychopathy or my narcissism or my belief that the world is an extension of me because I can actually make anything I want happen. I can, I can control that whole population of people in that country. I can... I can change their minds. You know, George Soros can get in there with open uh, his Open Society Foundation and his NGOs and, and make it all happen and say, see, and, even, and then there's the added layer of bullshitting yourself of saying this was the will of the people because I funded all those NGOs and manipulated all those people to want that and then they reflect back to me what I believe about them uh, fundamentally, which is they all want what I want. And I never admit myself that admit to myself that I manipulated them into doing that, or I bombed them into doing it. Because, well, that's not what happened. Those people rose up in a civil war, didn't they? Uh, no, they didn't. Uh, and occasionally, um, in quiet reflection, in their memoirs or something, they might let on that yes, we brought about the situation. And there, you get a few hints that they see that, yes, we got them to think that way and then reflect the reality we wanted for them, but that that's what our function here is on the planet. Uh, and in their narratives, they say, well, they're all as children and we're the adults. Right, the thinking ones, the ones who have a little bit of awareness, uh, not even much, but who take it a bit further, mm. are a bit more conscious, conscious about what they're doing, will we'll go to that explanation, which is that, yeah, we manipulate them, yeah, we bomb countries, but that's the way it has to be, because these people are no good on their own. Yeah, These people left to their own devices will mess things up. They don't know what's good for them. They need a strong leader, and sometimes you have to break a few eggs to make an omelette. Mm -hmm. That kind of bullshit. Um, so they, 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 that's still a deeper level of, uh, of, of delusion, if you know what I mean. But it's it's, it's yeah. on a broader scale. It shows a little bit of insight, at least, in terms of your own lies and manipulations that you don't actually believe your own lies uh, but you're believing a deeper lie to yourself which is that I have to do this for the good of these people at least, I, at least they recognize that they're killing people but they justify it mm -hmm. and turn it into something good 
mm-hmm. which is an even deeper level of uh, it's like applies to yourself. Brzezinski's um, a famous interview with the French magazine of the 90s where the journalist thinks he's putting him on the spot by saying, haven't you created a bit of a problem here by creating these Mojahideen? Because now they're, they're, they're Al-Qaeda, they're terrorist groups, they're blowing up embassies in the in, U.S. embassies in Africa, you know, oof. and he's like, he's indignant, and he says, "Oh, come on, what's what's the worst? What's the worst of the two evils here? A few stirred up Muslims, or the fact that we brought down the most the evil empire, the USSR." Mm-hmm. He didn't say it in so many words, but what he's saying, dot dot dot, is we we liberated, we freed those two hundred. 200 plus million people in the USSR. Of course it was worth it. I did a saintly thing. I, I created a few startup Muslims and then I brought down the entire Soviet system and I liberated all of Eurasia. That's how he sees it. You right. know, yeah, <laughs> nobody asked you for that. You, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it's astonishing level of uh, self-deception and self-deceit and lies and I mean... It's all going wrong for them, though. That this is not the level of military and stuff, but the economic and the the trade level. Everyone knows about the transatlantic partnership and the transpacific. They've had some success with the, the Pacific one. They've at least got some sixteen countries to sign a, mem- a memorandum of understanding to work towards a final agreement. But we'll see. Most of those are fairly fairly peripheral. Um, Pacific Asian players. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Europe, the, the, the TPP, TTIP, um, just this weekend, the German economy minister, who's also Merkel's vice chancellor, uh, says point blank. This is uh, Vice Chancellor Sigmar Gabriel. In my opinion, the negotiations within the United with the the United States, between Europe and the United States, have de facto failed, even though nobody is really admitting it. He said this on ZDF, German Public TV. Um, He goes on, they have failed because we Europeans did not want to subject ourselves to American demands. And he he discloses, nobody really knows what's in these documents. People have made good deductions. Basically, everyone else is screwed and... uh, Transnational corporations, primarily U.S.-based ones, will have preference over every, everyone else. These guys aren't against this in principle. The Germans are against it because he lets on here one of the one of the uh, key points in the agreement is that, uh, which has failed as far as he's concerned. One of the stumbling blocks is an American objection to a European demand public tenders be opened to European companies. Think about that for a second. Would they want to create this free trade zone where European companies would be explicitly in the second rank? Uh, and as he's, he points out simply, for me, that goes against free trade. I mean, it's, it's so... In your, it's in your face. Of course, the, of course the German economy minister is going to say point blank, no... If you did actually want, if you actually lived up to what you're, what you're professing this is, ideologically you're saying this is a free trade zone based on, let's say, Western international trading norms, and we can all agree to that, fine. 
But you're, it seems that he's letting on here. They're explicitly saying, no, American corporations would be in the first rank, and all of you will get the scraps. Yeah. America needs to rule the world. What is the, what's he supposed <laughs> to say? Well, he can't say anything else uh, than uh, nine. Yeah. And, and remember also, they, they, Washington wants this wrapped up by the end of this year. Mm. They're, in a, they're in a hurry and it's coming apart. Mm. It's, it's, they're just loot, looting the place before it all collapses probably, you know, or, or the, the, the process of extreme looting of the entire globe basically in the economy will, uh, will cause it to collapse, you know. Uh, which is always a possibility, you know. Uh, but, the, yeah, the the TPP has also been held up, yeah, a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of resistance to it and stuff, but they haven't greater, greater success with it because there's fewer countries involved, you know. Um, but TTIP, which is for the European side, is, um, yeah, seems to be a little bit of sanity still prevailing among some European governments, you know, at least when it comes down to economics, you know, because what you're describing there is, is even the politicians who may have interests in these country, in these companies, you know, mm. uh, who would be denied, uh, you know, access to, to, to profits, to deals and stuff by TTIP in favor of American companies. They're like, when it, when, that's, that's really hitting those politicians that you want to get on your side, that you want to agree to TTIP. Uh, it's hitting them and the word hurts type of thing. It's giving them <clears throat> a real problem where they get nothing out of it. And I mean, you know, you have to be a real servant of of the U.S., a real kind of fog uh, Rasmussen, yeah. former NATO guy, to to, to go with that one. Yeah. Like we had basically screw yourself over in favor of America, just for America, cause America. You know, just cause, just cause America. Anyway, cause America. That's that's the. Uh, Explanation for everything. Cosmerica. Um, <laughs> oh, God. How many save us from the inanity and insanity? Cosmerica. Exactly, Bahar. Um, <laughs> just, remember, just remember that. If you ever feel you're in doubt, if you ever have any doubts creeping in, that America is great, just say Merica to yourself a few times. Feel, feel the love and apple pie. And if anyone's ever heckling you in your murk in this... Shout USA, USA. Shout USA multiple times. Just drown them out. Yeah. So, I think we've dealt with the topic of the show for this week. Um, we'll be back next week. Same time, same place. Thank you for listening, and y'all stay safe. Bye. Bye. Bye.